Welcome to Sustainably Influenced, the podcast, hosted by me, Bianca Foley. And me, Charlotte Williams. In this podcast, we explore our efforts to making changes to our lifestyle as influencers, to live a more eco-conscious lifestyle, and hope that we can encourage you to make one small change. This isn't just a podcast for influencers. We want this to be a community of people who are trying to do their bit, where we can learn from one another and share our tips. So join in the conversation over on our Instagram, at Sustainably Influenced. Marilyn Kikelli founded Mamata in 2018 from a desire. She began her journey to fulfill her needs and those of women with similar desires. Named after a play on the French words for Mother Earth, Mamata makes ethical, sophisticated adornments for spirited women who want to look good and live well. Hi, Marilyn. Thanks for joining us. Hello. It's lovely to be here. I'm so pleased to join you guys. Yeah, oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know that it's been a crazy couple of days, so it's really appreciated. So we'll kind of just get into the questions because um, I know that ethical jewellery is quite, I'm always asked about it and it's something that I used to make jewellery when I was younger and it's something to me that really, it's just a beautiful craft. So Mamata is just such a unique and feminine brand. Uh, I guess, could you tell us more about it? What led you to create the brand? Sure. Um, so I, it's an interesting journey because, um, so obviously I, I was in a completely different career before. So, um, I've, I've kind of like, um, I've, I've I would say I've, I've kind of made, had many lives, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so, um, I started my career really interestingly enough in the luxury sector. So, um, I worked for Prada, um, in 2004. So that was one of my first internships. Um, and at the time, let's say it was not the, the kind of the most welcoming environment um, for young people. Um, so I didn't feel like it was a place for me to be able to continue to thrive. Um, and, and I think the values at the time were just not really ones of inclusivity and, um, and, and tolerance to a certain extent. And I just didn't feel like it was the kind of leadership I wanted to be in. Um, so funny enough, I actually was uh, one of those children who was also good at math as well as good at doing artistic things which is like a bit of an odd one um so I essentially followed what my parents who were wanting me to do which is go and do some maths and some more maths um so I ended up becoming a banker actually funny enough of all kind of strange careers um and I was actually initially I wanted to be one of those bankers that you see on tv with like the lovely suit and you know the expensive shoes and so on um, <laughs> and then and then I realized that actually I was better at um kind of putting plans in place so kind of like um discussing with people so one of the big things that I'm really good at is chatting to a million people um and turning the stories into actionable uh things to do so I became a strategy consultant um, but in, in still in banking. And um, so I kind of uh, spent kind of about uh, 10, 12 years in, of my career in that sector. Um, and interestingly, it was also a time when obviously um, my appearance was very important. So the way I looked was very important because when you're coming and you're making very big presentations in front of um, kind of big investors and so on, so you have to look the part. Um, and I always struggled with essentially anything that looked far too conservative. So as you can see, for those of you who can't see me, I'm wearing very colorful outfits. <laughs> I, I do like wearing color. I do like striking colors. Um, and I just 
couldn't express this part of me really, um, you know, kind of in a banking setting, it was a bit too out there. Yeah. <laughs> so I was often known as the, the cuckoo one. <laughs> so, um, so I was kind of, uh, so yes, I was always kind of looking for um, striking pieces which could um, kind of help me stand out, uh, both to support my message, but also very much to look the way I wanted to look really. Um, and then in 2018, um, you know, kind of I had a bit of a personal um, kind of re-questioning of what I wanted to do with my life, with my career. I had had a few stressful years. It had been very difficult um, personally, but also kind of in terms of wanting to make a next step and move to something different. So I actually had a bit of an eat, pray, love moment when I, I, you know, I took a sabbatical, um, kind of moved back to Paris um, of all places. Um, and then just spent, you know, kind of the rest of the time really rethinking and doing a lot of uh, meditation, a lot of kind of self-analysis um, and just really trying to get back to the core of what made me happy. Because I, I said to myself, I, I want the next 30 years to be really focused on making myself happy, right? Just mm -hmm. that focus, how can I be happy? Um, and then, you know, one of the core things at the heart of it is I was interested and, and loved being creative. Um, and actually creativity was always the kind of the core of many of the things that kept me centered. Um, so it felt like exploring, re-exploring creativity was where I needed to make the first start. So I went back to school, I'm retrained as a, trained as a jewelry designer, actually, rather than retrained, even though I used to work with jewelry designers when I was a partner. Um, and then the rest is history. Um, so, so that's essentially the genesis of Mamater. Why, uh, why this name? Um, I'm very much um, kind of connected with nature. I'm, I'm someone who loves being in nature, out there, in parks, um, kind of surrounded by beauty, by nature. It's a very intrinsic part of who I am. Um, and I wanted the name of my brand to be connected to something that was connected to who I am. Um, um, and I also wanted something that reminded me of my childhood. So, um, you know, kind of it's also a play on the idea of homeland um, and the idea of, you know, where you come from where your origins are from, kind of being grounded in the soil, being grounded in the earth. Um, so that's all connected to that. Um, and to me, that kind of name is also kind of very much interpreted in everything I do in terms of making the products, in terms of um, the connection, the products, the, the messaging, um, and actually the way I want the women who wears them to feel. So, so yeah. So that's lovely and heartwarming. Yeah, <laughs> it's such an interesting background, how... I think that happens quite often. I do know quite a few people who um, went into the corporate and then realising that it really wasn't for them because it just doesn't suit all personality. Yeah. Um, so it's really great that you were able to move on and create something that you really, really wanted to do and you feel you know, content and happy to do. I've spoken to lots of different people and I, for one, I work in the corporate kind of sphere as well, doing something creative. And my kind of job, I deal with a lot of large mining companies. Um, so whenever I'm like reviewing their businesses and things like that, I think to myself, oh God, like the ethics involved with that are just, there's, there seems to be no streamlining and no transparency from the mine right through to the corporate level and that and ethics have always been a big topic of discussion in the jewelry industry 
for those who don't really know a lot about the background, are you able to provide some sort of like just brief history <laughs> for our listeners? Sure. Um, so I think there are, there are I, I probably would summarise as two layers um, um, into the conversation. Um, so you have the layer that is that maybe many people are more familiar with, which is the layer where you're talking about um, high, high-end jewelry. So when you're talking about diamonds, um, you're talking about sapphires and, and emerald and so on. Um, and historically, um, essentially, those precious metal, uh, precious stones have been used as currencies in, um, in essentially wars. Um, so they were used to buy weapons, um, to buy mines, um, and to actually finance conflict. Um, so what are they talking about? Conflict literally um, everywhere in the world, from Asia all the way to Africa and Latin America. Um, so there, there have been a number of attempts by the international community um, to regulate um, the sale of those precious stones. Um, you're talking about the Kimberley process, for example, which was established in order to ensure that you wouldn't um, have companies buying diamonds, which were considered blood diamonds, which is, I think, a, probably a terminology that people are familiar with. Um, so, and, and, and essentially the process has been implemented in order to ensure more transparency in the supply chain so that when you're buying, for example, your beautiful diamond ring um, for your engagement, um, you have confidence that it was not mine, maybe by a six-year-old um, who was sent within a mine and actually sold um, for you know, weapons in exchange to go and kill people. Um, so that process was established in um, around the 90s um, and, and well in, term, in terms of implementation, um, well into now. Um, the challenge around the process is really transparency on the ground um, because in reality, if you're looking at buying precious stones, um, as you all know, precious stones are very small um, and they're therefore things which are very easily smuggled. Um, very difficult to trace uh, because actually you can't just test the DNA of a stone to figure out which mine it is coming from. Um, extremely difficult to trace. It looks very innocuous. Um, so actually, if you see a rough diamond in nature, it doesn't look anything like the shiny, lovely piece that you see on, on the ring. Um, so it makes it, you know, people who are not experts and who are not familiar with that will find it very difficult to identify them and to be able to trace that. So even though the, there are rules and there are processes in place, it is still very much a difficult thing to achieve. Now, looking at the second part of the sector, which is very much the one that I think most people will be familiar with, is where you're buying semi-precious stones. So that's your lovely ring that you may be buying um, from, you know, a nice fashion designer or maybe an independent brand like myself. Um, and that's a secondary market. That's the second part of the market. It's a part of the market that's more affordable for most people. Um, and there, the challenge is even bigger um, because actually, you know, it's even less traceable um, if you're talking about semi-precious stones, we're talking about garnet and so on. One, because most people don't know what they look like. They don't know the names. They don't know how to recognize them, where their origins are from. But also, even as a jeweler, um, when there's so many intermediaries between the person who's mining it, um, maybe, for example, in Tanzania, um, in a very remote place, um, all the way to myself, for example, um, you know, being a jeweler based in the UK, um, how many intermediaries have been between that miner um, and myself is always the big question. Um, and I think it, it will continue to be a challenge because jewelry by its nature is 
an industry where mystery um, um, is seductive. Um, it's based on the idea of, you know, illusion of allure of seduction. Um, so by its very nature, it's not something that is easily um, um, traceable. So, yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. We Obviously, a lot of people have seen Blood Diamond and there are lots of films that talk about it. But as you said, it's so easy to be um, kind of like deceived by the jewellery because it's so sparkly and we, we just, it's so pretty and we want, we want it. Um, and it's just so sad to think that the kind of things that go into creating some pieces of jewellery. So, yeah. And particularly the one part of which that I want to, to really stress on is when you're thinking of sustainable jewellery, don't just look at the word sustainable. Ask yourself the question of what is the material that was used to make it? Mm -hmm. um, and there's two aspects of it. There's a lot of companies who actually brand themselves as sustainable, but actually offer synthetic um, stones. Um, and it's okay, but synthetic stones also have consequences. So um, synthetic stones are probably not mine um, in the same way. So they're definitely not mine by maybe somebody really poor who doesn't have any other option. But they're also very much removing money from that person's hands. Um, because very often those are communities that are very remote, that have very little um, to actually be able to feed themselves. This is literally sometimes the only way they have to be able to afford to eat or to even, you know, kind of take care of their children. So it is a very big, it's, it's a very big challenge because what do you do? Um, do you go for synthetic materials? And then, yes, obviously, you have great conscience. You feel like you're not exploiting somebody. But at the same time, you're not actually giving them any money. So they may be destitute. And then you have all sorts of other consequences as well. Yeah. 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 So the ethics behind jewellery. Um, yeah, that's actually a really good point. I was talking to my partner recently about um, sustainable diamonds. We had this discussion as well, didn't we, Bianca? Mm. And I hadn't actually heard of, I said, how can a diamond be sustainable? And he said that they were made in a lab. And I was like, oh, I guess so. But then I said, well, what about all the, the mining villages and places? Like, what happens to them? And then we were saying how they won't be needed anymore. But then you don't think about the consequence. If they're not needed, then what's their next form of income? Like, how will they yeah. survive? Yeah, it's a really such an important topic. It's so a catch too, isn't it? When you think about it, it's, it's a... Like on one hand, you're you can be exploiting this village or these people, and on the other hand, you're trying not to exploit them, but at the same time, you're taking food out of or food and money out of their hands. Like it's very, it's just bizarre. <laughs> I guess that's why it's important, and you mentioned that having different regulations and different you know organisations in place to ensure that the jewellery and the, the stones and the you know raw resources that we we use for jewelry making are actually um ethically sourced um which i imagine in certain places to be next to impossible um, <laughs> so how do for you i imagine this is a huge challenge but how do you kind of navigate that yeah uh, I will, of course so for me if i have to tell you so there's two aspects to it um so there's what i want to do which is where, where i'm hoping to get to yeah. um, the reality for me is the way you're dressed out is by essentially being on the ground. Um, it's by actually being very close to those mining villages and being able to buy the product to them that, from them directly. 
So you stop having so many intermediaries and then you're actually directly working with them and therefore paying them a fair price. That's how you truly make a change because you're actually putting money directly in their hands. Um, and so therefore you're able to be there and to be in place to enforce those kind of important rules. So you stop having so many intermediaries um, in the middle. That to me is what I want to do. Um, but obviously there are some challenges from a logistics standpoint, from a tax perspective and so on, but I can talk about that. The way I've started to, I've, I've analyzed a problem on so many different layers and dimensions. Um, I felt that for me, the, the way I could start was first by establishing myself as a brand with that, very much that identity, but very much as a first step, I'm kind of choosing not to use um, actually semi-precious stones that are mined um, from a place that are not traceable. Um, so I work with essentially fair trade um, intermediaries um, who specifically um, kind of, I have a very clear understanding of which mine they actually source those products from. Um, and I also, and I, not only do I have an understanding of it, but I actually see pictures of them. I'm aware of when they're going to visit the mines. I'm aware of when they're going to see the people. Um, so I'm able to even ask if I can dial in um, to actually zoom in um, to see the conversations and the discussions. Yeah. Um, and essentially, I'm able to be as close as I can possibly be to the source product. That's one way for which I do that. It's obviously not easy. It has a consequence in terms of my capacity to produce. I can yeah. produce thousands of pieces. Um, but to me, it's so important to really work with those intermediaries who are really trying to make that change and that step change. So that's step number one. Step number two is to use materials which can be all produced um, kind of in the UK or actually in countries that are nearby. So it's kind of like having both strategies um, in order to help me once serve my customers because um, fundamentally my customers are also core to this discussion. Educate my customers, which is so key for me um, and actually it's a core part of explaining why it's important to do that. Um, and then as I continue to grow, actually being able to do more of that you know, kind of good sourcing, um, maybe over time less of that direct production maybe here. So why not actually have, you know, labs on the ground, which enable me to produce directly in the country of origin. So that's kind of how I'm, I'm hoping to address this challenge and how I've chosen to start now with with the tools that I have right now, with with the goal of obviously being more ambitious over time. That's amazing. It's, it's just so interesting to, to see that you can, all right, you're not there necessarily, but you are able to be a part of the conversation and to manage these, this supply chain and you're able to manage the kind of process from start to finish. And yeah, the, the, the values are shown I guess <laughs> I imagine your job is really fun to an extent because you're, you're shopping and you're traveling all the time. <laughs> where do where do you source a lot of your materials from where are you able to travel um, to yes sure so I do work with an intermediary who works in Sri Lanka um, and Tanzania um, so those are the two countries specifically I'm working with um, and I do with the products that are actually made in ceramics. So you'll have seen some of my collections mm -hmm. um, in ceramics. Um, they're actually made in Paris, um, right in the city. So. <laughs> wow. What great places to go. Exactly. <laughs> Sri Lanka, amazing. Been there, loved it. Paris, <laughs> everyone loves Paris. And then Tanzania, was that the, the other country? Yeah. 
known to I'd love to go. In the world to go. So yeah, not not shoddy. Very nice places to be <laughs> from. Damn it! I need to change my change my, my business. Um, that's fantastic. So um, if we look forward ten years, let's say, um, what sustainability methods would you like to see adopted into the jewelry industry? Because you're already making changes and making sure that your com- your company is you know setting its future ways. But what would you like to see as the overall um, change? So for me, full transparency for customers. Um, I think the fashion industry is much more ahead of the jewelry industry when it comes to the conversation. Um, I think people understand, well, I mean, not fully, but you do have information available now to tell you what kind of fabrics are truly sustainable, what kind of fabrics are actually, you know, not biodegradable and things like that. Um, And I think it's really important for the jewelry industry to actually have the same level of transparency with customers um, because quite often what I find is that people don't always understand. So one example, one topic that people often think of when they think of jewelry, sometimes people think, oh, it's so expensive. Um, And actually they say, oh, you know, why is it this expensive? Or, you know, oh, this lovely pair, why is it like that? Um, And the reason why this, there are some very good reasons but also there's, you know, kind of not to call out anybody, by the way. So this is not at all <laughs> calling out anybody. But, but the lack of transparency means that some brands can actually sell things to you at a price that is far more inflated there than the actual value of the product. So from a customer perspective, it makes things difficult because you don't know which brand is truly selling you um, mm high value jewelry versus another because sometimes the price is actually the brand um it's not really the interesting value of what you're buying so to me transparency for customers um in the same way that you have with fashion where if you buy you know cashmere you know it's going to be more expensive than just regular wool you understand why to me that would be great um having that across the board yeah yeah definitely that will also really help with like, there are some brands that are just, just expensive. Not, <laughs> they're, not because their materials are necessarily, you know, really expensive materials or how they're sourcing it. It's just a brand. So that would be really nice actually. Yeah. Bring a bit of an understanding of what is just marketing and what is just, you know, because we're sourcing from real exciting places. Yeah. And also for sustainability, because for, for it to be sustainable, you need for people to understand why the price is the way it is. Mm-hmm. And you need yeah. to fairly um, actually understand that they're investing in communities. Yeah. So if if a price is in a certain way because we're paying, you know, a minor lady, for example. Oh, by the way, an interesting tidbit. Um, actually, the majority of small scale miners are actually women. Um, which is really, like, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. So oftentimes it, it is actually women because. If you think about it, um, kind of precious stones are quite small, and there's also the perception that women have finer hands and therefore are able to, like, you know, go through them much more easily. So actually, it's a proportion of miners who with semi-precious stones are female. So if you're thinking that you're paying that woman a fair price, mm-hmm. both to be able to send their children to school, to take care of their family, you're more willing to invest in that piece of jewelry with with that feeling that you're actually making a difference um, and you have transparency around materials and pricing, then you know you're making the right decision. Yeah, oh, definitely. That's, that's a really, 
that's a really nice point to kind of bring everything to a close. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been a really interesting discussion, I must say. It's really, and thank you for, for sharing the last bit with us. I had no idea that the majority of miners were women. I was always under the impression that it was children more so and then men because of the weight of things. But yeah, I didn't realize it was women. That's so, it's just so interesting. Um, we always ask our guests to set us a sustainability challenge each week. I don't know if our listeners know this, but we never know what they are. So when we <laughs> for the first time, it is a surprise. So what challenge have you got for us this week? Okay. Um, so the challenge I have for you this week, um, and it is about waste. So it's a very important topic for me. Um, so I, I do challenge you to not buy a single thing that is wrapped in plastic this week. Okay. Oh, I hate these challenges. <laughs> That's actually impossible. You know that. <laughs> oh, it is possible. Yeah, no, it is possible. If you choose the we right. Did. So yeah. Yeah, no, you have you have to. So I can give some tips. Go on Instagram, look at small businesses. If you want to buy your groceries, go on Instagram, look at the small groceries who are currently struggling. Um, give them a call um, or text them, send them a message, and say, "I'd love to buy this. Do you deliver? Uh, or actually, can I come and pick it up?" Um, and they can actually give it to you without any plastic because they can put it in the bag or something. Um, so support small businesses by doing that. So that's actually the way in which you can do that if you just contact small businesses and, and ask them to help you do that. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, because we did something similar, didn't we, near the start of the the start yeah. of the when we first it was like it was for a week, yeah. like first three hours. That, yeah, well you were the first three hours, mine was the first three minutes. Uh, <laughs> but it was <laughs> We've learned a lot since then. Yeah. So we should be able to do it again much better. There's many things which are now wrapped in plastic, actually, if oh, you go yeah. to the market. So you can buy tea, for example. There's no plastic. Tea. Safe tea. And um, yeah. You can buy bread. Um, just go to the bakery area in the yeah. supermarket. Make sure you bring your own bag. <laughs> I've actually got a lot better at doing that myself. I've started taking um, Tupperware with me to the supermarket well this was before lockdown obviously there's no meat counters or anything open at the moment but if I go to the local the local farmers market I take all my bags with me but then I've started taking um Tupperware and I've ordered some brown paper bags so that I can use that as well so I'm trying to be better trying to make a conscious effort to be better <laughs> for once I'm looking forward to a no plastic challenge yeah, I'm loving it <laughs> We'll let you know how we get on. <laughs> but, yeah. So Marilyn, if we wanted to find you on social media, where would we find the business or yourself? Yeah, sure. So on social media, you can find me on Instagram. So that's Mamata Jules, um, M-A-M-A-T-E-R-J-E-W-E-L-S. Um, so I actually have beautiful stories at the moment. So I'm doing actually a retrospective on the Harlem Renaissance in my story. Oh. Yet you can connect, um, and you can also find me on mamater.com. So m a m a t e r dot com. So yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And much. oh, if you if you um, I was going to say if you want to find us, we're at sustainably influenced on Instagram. Forget about us. Who cares about us? 